Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. All right, well, as you can tell, I assume it is your habit to look through the worksheet when you get it. We're going to be talking about something that tonight, unfortunately, is like a lot of words in the Bible that are just inherently confusing. Now, there are some that are so critically important. I spend a lot of time teaching on them, and I hope when you hear words like repentance and faith, those things are very clear to you. But there are words, and I often talk about words like glory, and the word we're going to deal with tonight that just is foggy, I find, in people's mind. And I know that because I can detect it in the way they use the word. So I want to spend tonight, the entire time, talking about this very important topic of grace. And since everything else seemed to turn out in my planning here, something versus something, I started with a point that I call grace versus grace versus grace because we need to really think through the ways we use this word in our English language that really have very little or nothing to do with what the Bible is trying to communicate to us. So let's think this through. I'll bet this word has been used in your hearing Recently, when this was taking place, people say, oh, I am wanting to hear pray before a meal, and they'll say, well, I'll say grace before we eat. There's the use of the word thrown about when people are bowing their heads and talking to God before a meal. We call that prayer. Some people call it grace. Maybe you call it grace. Uh, Believe it or not, you look up in a dictionary the word grace, you'll see that that is the proper address for a duke or a duchess. And since you don't probably have one of those in your house, maybe that's not the way... You address anyone in your home, but certainly on the movies and TV, British monarchy, royalty, you'll hear that word tossed about your grace, his grace, her grace. Understand that as an appellation, a title, but uh, finds its derivative from the Bible, but certainly doesn't help us in understanding the topic. All of us are concerned about this when it comes to our property tax or our visa bill, that time allowed for payment without penalty. We talk about this particular bill is due here, but you have a grace period until you're dinged with a penalty. We use the word grace in that regard. You have a three-month grace period. There's two days grace after you sign that insurance policy, whatever it might be. There's another way we use the word. has some origins in what we're going to talk about tonight, but used so often in a way that really is not what we're getting at completely tonight. Grace. People talk about grace as something uh, that they're describing as elegant. They danced with grace. It was so graceful. Did you see my daughter's you know, recital? She was so graceful. It's a description of something elegant, something with excellence, something with beauty, something with style. Now, these are words that if you worked hard to try and build a tree of cognate, you'd find your way back to what we're talking about. But instead of doing all that work, which I don't care to do, I just want to zero in on biblical usage and say we got our own problem dealing with the way the Bible uses the word because it is used in various ways. We're going to look at two primary ways and, uh, and focus on those tonight. Number one, these are all grouped together here. These are not three different ways. This is the first biblical usage, and that is we're talking about favor, as in approval, as in I like you. <laughs> Uh, I approve of you. You are in good favor with me. You're not my enemy. I don't have a grudge against you. Favor. In Esther, chapter 2, King Xerxes loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won, Hebrew word is hen, 
translates grace most of the time, as we'll see in a moment. She won grace, and then here's a synonym sitting right next to it, which comes from a familiar Hebrew word if you've been around the church for a while. The word hesed translated favor here, which is often translated love or loving kindness. She won grace, hen, and hesed. She won grace and love or favor in the sight more than all the other virgins, so that he, Xerxes, set the royal crown on Esther's head and made her queen and deposed Vashti, and it was a really sad day for Vashti. And I mean, you think grace here, you're thinking, well, that's not the kind of grace... I'm thinking about. Well, there's lots of usages of this in the Bible that have nothing to do with our salvation. If you use logos and you right-click on the word grace and you find your way to the word that's most commonly translated grace, hen in Hebrew, you'll find a definition or at least the short definition, grace, charm, favor, popularity. You can see that connection. Most of the time, the Hebrew word hen, which is the primary word translated grace, it's translated favor multiple times. But you'll see as you look around the wheel, graceful and grace, it is a translation in our ESV Bibles. Gracious, may it please. Interestingly enough, magic, you can look that one up on your own. Adornment, charm, and then hen, which was a proper name, which is kind of a nice name. And we, I mean, kids are called grace in our presence here tonight, maybe, perhaps. Your kid is Grace. Uh, It's the name attached to someone's uh, name tag, Hen. That's the common usage. In the New Testament, we have its equivalent, Charis. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. The people, the disciples there at the end of Acts chapter 2, things were going pretty well after the day of Pentecost. Lots of people won to the faith. Lots of people baptized. And it says they were praising God and having Charis, having favor. People were, were thinking this is good. It was all right. No persecution quite quite yet. They were having favor with all the people. People were thinking everything was fine. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Charis. Acts chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with great charis that was upon them. And great charis was upon them all. So the, the apostles here, minus Judas, of course, with his replacement, they were well received. They were the popularity, the acceptance was given to them. And you can look at some of these and you can say, okay, the reason in chapter 2 they favored them was because, I don't know, they thought it was a good thing that God was doing among the people. You can look at Esther and say, well, she was pretty. She won a beauty contest. You could say the apostles, because they were doing these miraculous gifts, everyone thought, well, these are great, great guys, and they gave them favor or acceptance or liking or approval. Uh, And these things, you can find an equivalency to why they cast their favor or, or, or gave their favor, gave their approval to them. And it's certainly not the way you learned a definition when you were, you were in Sunday school for the word grace. In Greek, by the way, which Lagos does something interesting here uh, in dividing the word for us, which is helpful. They're trying to help. They're trying to work with the way that they describe words for you. But if you look in the Lagos, you right-click grace, you look at the common word for grace, it's the word charis, quick definition, grace. The translation is grace in the red and grace in the blue, but they divide that for you saying grace as an outworking. In other words, some resulting activity or consequence of God's favor, and then grace in the sense that uh, God's grace that somehow benefits recipients. So they divide those. Nevertheless, if you look them up in both of these parts of the circle, pieces of the pie, translated grace. Then you can see around the circle, much less, thanks, it's translated thanks, or present, as in a grace that was a present, which of course, that's starting to look like our Sunday school answer. Credit, grace is a system, you'd have to click on that if you have your logos with you tonight. Charm or appeal, you can see that in its connection to the word hen in the Old Testament. Honor, 
and to thank. So these are the words that come in our English language, our ESV, from the Greek word charis. And now we've seen the two primary words for grace in both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. The one we're concerned about and that we're usually taught in Sunday school to recite a definition for is the second way in which it's used as it relates to unearned and complete acceptance. And if you want to be, I assume, full and thorough in your definition, you might want to add because of Christ, obviously. That's the point. Christ gives us full acceptance, and it's unearned because he earned it for us. So unearned and complete acceptance. If you were in Sunday school and as a kid you were told to come up with a definition for grace, you were probably taught something like God's unmerited favor, which I find is so often repeated by our young people in the church, they don't even know what those words mean sometimes. They can't explain what they mean. So the idea is you did nothing to earn it, unlike Esther. You did nothing to gain it in the eyes of the people, unlike Acts chapter 4 or Acts chapter 2, the kind of grace we're concerned about as it relates to our salvation from God is a kind that's unearned. Not because we're beautiful. It's not because we did something amazing. It's not because the people thought it was really great that these good things were happening among us. It's completely unearned and complete acceptance gained in Christ. Like Like the crook on the cross that was dying on the cross, he was a recipient of God's grace. Grace that was unearned and was completely acceptable, so much so that he could that day when he dies go directly to paradise. Ephesians chapter 2, this is the verse that usually prompts the Sunday school student to have to learn a definition, and it comes from a proof text like this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ. That's important because he earned it, and the acceptance is like his acceptance. And then he gives us this little parenthetical statement. By charis, by grace, you've been saved. Not the kind of grace that we see in some context in the Bible where it's earned, where it's because we're noteworthy or or meritorious, but because we were dead, we are made alive. Complete, unearned acceptance. And we've been raised up with him. He seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his charis, of his grace. He's going to show how crazy big this grace is. And his in kindness toward us, that kind of gives us that sense of this is a very nice thing for God to do toward us in Christ. In Christ means the niceness is aimed because of the merit of Christ. For by, here's the classic verse, charis, by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. There's the picture that we're getting at in our study tonight to try and distinguish it from everything else, the kind of unearned, complete acceptance that we gain because of Christ's work on our behalf, which gets us back to some of the basics in the Bible. If it's not because we won a beauty contest or because we did some miraculous things and everyone then gives their favor to us, it's the kind of favor that's given completely unearned because all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified by his grace. The juxtaposition of those two verses help us understand this isn't because we earned it, unlike other usages of the word grace in the Bible, but justified by his charis as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We worked on that word in weeks past. Romans chapter 11, verse 5, just to add on a couple other texts that say the same thing. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant. There's a group of people chosen by grace, unearned, unmerited. It's not a beauty contest. But if it is by grace, charis, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, charis would no longer be charis. Now, you'd have to say, well, you're distinguishing that kind of charis from the kind of charis that we find in Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 4 or the Hebrew equivalent hen back there in the book of Esther. You're right. This is a different kind of grace. This is the kind of grace that we're talking about when we talk about saving grace. 
2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, because of his own purpose and his grace. He decided this, his decision. We looked at this week three, and he did it because of his grace. He purposed it, he did it, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, before we could do anything good or bad. Grace. All right, there's where we're going, and that's what we're going to look at, and that's what we want to try to grapple with tonight. Number two, common grace versus saving grace. This is helpful in many regards, which I hope will become clear as we move through it. Let's give a definition, letter A here, of common grace. Definition of common grace. Not the kind of grace we just talked about. It's the kind of grace that's depicted here in Psalm 145, verses 9 and 15 and 16. The Lord is good to all. This is the blanket statement regarding God toward his creation. And his mercy, so you can see that now I'm starting to understand there's a problem and God has to be merciful. If he's going to be good, it's not because people earn it. His mercy is over all that he has made. This is a great psalm, but just for the sake of time and, and consi- uh, you know, being concise, verse 15, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. Now, of course, not all the eyes look to God, although the context here has to do with the cre- creatures on the planet that are not human beings. Uh, I suppose that the poetic sense in which all these animals are dependent on God certainly, though, would include people who recognize God's provision. But even if they don't, as verse 16 makes clear, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Context is they're hungry and God feeds them and people get food. And the idea here is God is providing. My definition is it's the undeserved good that God variously grants to all people. He's not perfectly fair if you want to talk about equity in giving everybody equal grace. You would understand that. Not everyone is equally smart. Not everyone is equally talented. Not everyone is equally beautiful. Not everyone is is equally privileged. Not everyone is born in equal times of prosperity. Clearly, God's good is varied, but he grants good to all people, as Psalm 145 says. He shows goodness, and it is tied up in his mercy because they don't deserve it. So there's the connection to saving grace in that it's undeserved in the most fundamental sense. Why? Because, let her be, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Now, I talk about saving grace in terms of the free gift of God being eternal life, my sins forgiven, but if I want to take it down a notch to the idea of common grace, I've got to say, well, if the wages of sin is death, then why didn't we all die the moment we sin? And going back to the garden, why didn't Adam and Eve die when they sinned? Isn't that what God promised? The day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will surely die. And then we say, well, I guess they did. They died relationally. We call that spiritual death. And God started the process of biological death, physical death. But I guess they got some more time to live as biological units here on the earth. And you're right. And that was his mercy. And everything between their death and their sin, or I should say their sin and their death, is its common grace. Common grace, if you think about it, and you'd have to go back, I suppose, to the detail work we did in the eschatology series on why God's punishment of hell is so appropriate in every way. God is completely just and completely right and totally equitable to take people and with precision give them what they deserve away from the presence of God and from the glory of his power. The picture of Adam and Eve being kicked kicked out of the most lush place, the garden, into a world they now had to work and tend, and God curses the ground because of them and their sin, you can say is a picture of the ultimate judgment that they deserve. As the Bible says, we deserve to be kicked out of the presence of God completely. 
And that's what hell is, to be removed from the presence of God and from the glory of his power. The glory, the greatness, the, 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 the good things that God gives, take that all away. So that's what we deserve. Anything less than that, we would call common grace. Now, is that equally distributed on the planet? No. Equally distributed among people? No. Through time? No. Around the world? No, of course not. But if you're not suffering in a place of eternal punishment for the exacting things that you've done to a holy God, then we call that common grace. That's why you've heard the old phrase people use a lot these days, it seems, how are you doing better than I deserve? Nothing could be more true than that. If you are not in the lake of fire, you're doing better than you deserve. And that's the, re- that's the truth of common grace. Because God in his mercy is providing good things to people that deserve to be shut out from his presence. Common grace versus saving grace. And the Bible's very clear. If people have good, even if they don't look to the Lord for the good, which is what we saw in Psalm 145, the Bible's very clear. God's still the gracious source of good. It's undeserved. It's merciful. He gives it to them. We've seen this verse a hundred times, but it's important for us to remember verse 16 before we look at the familiar verse of, of verse 17. James 1, 16 says, do not be deceived. In other words, don't let anybody fool you on this. It's like over in Galatians when he says, don't be deceived. A man is going to reap whatever he sows. Even though there's a distance between the reaping and sowing, it's going to come. Well, in this text, it's very clear. He's going to say, here's something you could be easily tricked on, but it's something you've got to take note of. And that is that every good gift and every perfect gift, it comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, which instantaneously should make people think that was the ancient world's word for the sun and the stars and the moon. I mean... I guess without that, we're in big trouble. Of course, God, the provider of light for us, is the God who has been good and everything else that's less than God's light that keeps us alive. Of course, it's, it's all going to come from him. And there's no variation or shadow due to change. He's not there one day saying, I'm going to give him sunshine. Tomorrow, I'm not. God is a God who, at least in the major compartments of his gifts to mankind, he's a consistently good God during this period of their the distance between their sin and their death. And that period is a period that's provided, as we'll see in a moment, so that we can embrace his saving grace, but common grace. God graciously gives and sustains life. This is a bit philosophical, I suppose, to people. But like John 1 says, he is the light that gives light to people. He is the light that provides life for people. That's the provision of God. As it says in Acts 17... God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I mean, I don't know how we want to explain the light of life, which isn't a bad phrase even in modern philosophical discussions or even medical or biological or discussions of physics. We have something here. I mean, I think of the Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty, the ideas of God holding all things together. There is something that philosophically metaphysically you have to decide there's something beyond just the physical naturalists try to tap their way tiptoe their way around or tap dance their way around it but the reality of a as i like to say a dead frog and a living frog is something called life you know you can have all the pieces there but there's something called life that the bible calls the light of life that is given by god and the bible says god is actively giving that god himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything and he has made from, every, from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He's actually not far from each one of us. I mean, he's so close. He's the one sustaining your life. For in him, we, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, he's quoting now the Athenian poets, for indeed we are his offspring. So God 
made us. God didn't just make us back in the garden, Adam and Eve. That's called deism, where being a deist is saying God just kind of created the first parents and got the things going and set up the laws of nature and just kind of let it go, like a lot of our founding fathers believe that. But the reality of the Bible is he is constantly giving life to every generation, as verse 25 and 26 says, and he makes them live on the planet. He provides them life and breath and everything else. We live because God holds us together. So if you're living, you may not feel like the quality of your life is very good. If you're sick or you're struggling or you're suffering or you got arthritis or you got cancer or whatever your issues are, but the reality is every day you're alive, it's an active gift from God. That was the sense, and all this is just for review because we've looked at this passage in our series already, but that's the sense in which God is the Savior of all people. God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. There's the distinction between common grace and saving grace. There's a kind of a special, uh, you know, there's, he's especially our Savior, of course, because he's going to save us eternally, but he's the Savior of all people. Every, every thug in the penitentiary, the un- penitent person in the penitentiary, which is an interesting play on words, because there's a lot of unpenitent people in the penitentiary. Every one of them sustained by God, and in that sense, God is the savior of those people. When they eat the food that they complain so much about, God keeps them alive. The muscles they build up when they do their push-ups, God is sustaining the fibers of the muscles of their body, the synapse of their brain. God is the giver of those things. God graciously gives and sustains life. And God then provides everything in between. Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. I say this to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because then you're going to be like a chip off the old block. You'll be like your father. You'll be a son of, the, of your father who is in heaven. He makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends his reign on the just and the unjust. There is a Jesus-worded sentence that basically says what we see in James 1, the father of lights, his son rises on the evil and the good, and everything else like the rain and the crops and the food that they eat, everything is a gift from God, and it comes from him, and God graciously provides all the details. Letter F. For many, you can see I've qualified this, because this is not for everyone, but looking more at the varied aspects of common grace, he restrains their evil actions. And I say that by inverting these two passages that I'm about to show you. The first one from Psalm 81, verse 12. He speaks of those that he gives over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. The evil man speaks evil in his heart, and sometimes God has had enough and he turns them over to their stubbornness and their own counsel, and they do what they want to do, and there's an unbridled sense of their sin. Now, if the Bible says that God turns them over, makes that decision, then you can invert that and say there's some people with evil counsels in their hearts that he hasn't turned over. You can give me your testimony, and I'm sure there's aspects of your pre-Christian life where you look at your pre-Christian life and you say, lots of things I could have done, but I didn't do. There's a lot of sinful thoughts I had and imaginations and plans and plottings on my bed like the psalmist says, and I want to do evil, but I didn't do it. God didn't turn you over to cut you loose. There's many things that he did to restrain your evil action. The New Testament parallel to this is Romans chapter 1, verse 24, where again it says God gave these folks up in Romans 1 that he's describing to the passions, the epithumia, the strong desires, the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And you can probably sit here today and say, yeah, had a lot of thoughts, a lot of attitudes, a lot of impure desires, and, and there's a lot of things they didn't do. I'm ashamed of the things I did do, but there's a lot I didn't do. God didn't turn you over to the unbridled expression of your sin. And the Bible says God's involved in that. Old Testament, New Testament, God restrains. At some point, you can get him mad enough to have him say, fine, 
and he'll cut you loose. And speaking of the penitentiaries and a lot of other places, you'll see folks that have been turned over to their evil action. To the extent that he hasn't turned you over to the unbridled expression of your sin, that's the common grace of God. And it's active. You can see it's active. I can't be a deist and read those two verses because God does with some turn them over and with others he's continuing to restrain them. And for most, can't say this everywhere in the world at every given time in history, but I can say for most, God restrains evil societies because we could have it a lot worse. You say, well, I can't imagine. Yeah, do your homework. Could be a lot worse than it is here. And even throughout history, you can see that even the worst hot spots on our planet, it can be worse. It can be worse where people are eating their own offspring because of their evil desires, throwing their own children into the fire purposefully. Oh, we got abortion. It could be worse. And all I'm saying is God restrains evil societies and he's doing it and will continue to do it in pockets around the world. And I would hope for majority around the world, I said most, until the removal of the thing he calls here the one who restrains him. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, and you know what is restraining him. He's speaking there of the man of lawlessness, the leader of a rebellious world, a world system that's going to come and break on the scene. And we would know that we've missed the coming of the Lord as Christians if he's already been revealed. But of course he hasn't. So we know that God's still in the process of restraining that person and with him all the bad that goes with it so that he may be revealed in his time. And he's going to. The mystery of lawlessness. Now we go beyond that person, the man of lawlessness, to the mystery of lawlessness. And it's already at work. There's a lot of lawlessness going on and you can read the headlines and see it every day. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out of the way. So there's a restraining in society that's happening in societies all over the place in varying degrees. Does God restrain evil in society equally around the world? And ever? No, of course not. And in certain places, he does turn them over. In certain neighborhoods of our Southern California map, he turns certain areas over. But the idea is, for the most part, in his grace, he is, for most, I would say, restraining evil. How does he do that? Through government. Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. This is why we should pray for our government, as we read in our daily Bible reading this morning. For rulers are not a terror for good conduct, at least they shouldn't be, but they should be a terror for bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Well, then do what is good, and you'll receive approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. You can look at the maps around the world of all the geopolitical issues that go on on our planet, and you can say, I can see here it's going better than it is over there. And this is all because God's common grace in restraining evil societies through the mechanism primarily of government, which it says is supposed to be his ruler carrying out the restraint by force in government by avenging the wrong and rewarding the right. And again, it's not equal, obviously. And that's why we pray for government. We should be praying for our government, uh, for more good conduct, less bad conduct, less lying would be good. Yeah, gee, amen, right. I knew someone might say that. H, God's grace and cultural Christianity, you can't possibly have that on the screen, Pastor Mike. You just preached against that and you bashed us for that on the weekend. I did, you're right, because it's bad. Because if you're just a cultural Christian, you will die and go to hell. So I don't want to be a cultural Christian. I want to be a Christian who hears, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I don't want to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Or as I said in my opening illustration on the weekend, teacher, teacher, didn't we do all the assignments, went to class, went all the assemblies, we did all the field trips, and they'll say, depart from me, you were never enrolled. I don't want to be that person. I want to be the person that's engaged in real Christianity. But I'm about to tell you there's something that God does in restraining evil and providing good in society, even through cultural Christianity, and let me go even further, through world religions and cult groups. Yeah, think of the passage that we're referring to, Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. Many 
on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, here's the biblical words now, did we not prophesy in your name? Now, there are people prophesying in God's name. There are movements in youth groups tonight at Mormon churches in Utah telling young people not to have premarital sex. They're doing it in Jesus' name. They're not saved. They believe in a false God and a false gospel. They believe in a false Christ, but they're doing that in Christ's name. Casting out demons. There are rehab centers. There are people helping people get out of vices and problems because they're doing it in the name of, of, of cultural Christianity. They do it in the name of Christianity, but it's cultural Christianity. But there's some restraint of evil there. Many other mighty works they do in their names. So there are things being done, hospitals being built, people being helped, and society is improved, and God's common grace is delivered even through groups that have nothing to do with genuine Christianity. Now again, we're here to celebrate, talk about, understand saving grace, but I'm here to first distinguish it from common grace, and I am saying, let's thank God. Wouldn't you rather thank God for a religious group, even though they got the gospel wrong? I'd much rather have the restraint of evil that affects through that group, building hospitals, helping people, getting people off of drugs. I'd rather have that in our society, and I see the benefits of that in society over and against a complete lawless jungle of people killing each other, and i got to look over my shoulder thinking I'm going to get shot on the way home from church. That's common grace. Hebrews chapter 4, to speak specifically of cultural Christianity, he speaks of people that don't have it right with God. He says this in in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, Is it possible in the case of those who have been once enlightened? Look at that. They have insight. They have some knowledge. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They have a sense of God's blessing in their life. They've probably seen things that are in their life that are sinful be restrained. They've been put on the right paths in terms of this is a good thing God is doing in my life, quote unquote. They have a share in the Holy Spirit. Spirit convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The fear of God can keep people out of a lot of things that are bad. People are restrained from a lot of things because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the aspirations, the convictions, the promptings, all that. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. If people could just have more of the truth and the wisdom and the insight of God's Word, it's going to do good for society and and a, a taste of the powers of the age to come. They've seen it. They've witnessed God's work. Sometimes they mimic God's work, even though they're not saved. They fall away possible to restore them again to repentance because they're crucifying again the son of god to their own harm and holding them up to contempt now that's a passage you want to preach negatively like 99 times out of 100 times that you preach it and i and i have but tonight is the one time i'm going to say well wait a minute there's common grace in this is there not you got people here at least that are not cutting people's heads off because of the benefits to society because of cultural christianity not happy about that. I'm not going to settle for that. I don't want more cultural Christianity. I want more real Christianity. But can you accept at least the point that I'm making? There's common grace even through the culture of Christianity. And we've been, an ex- we've been recipients of the benefits of that in our culture in America for many generations now. That may be controversial to you. Hopefully I've sold you on that. If not, you can disregard it. Letter I mentioned this at some point early in this list. Common grace points, leads to, directs people to saving grace. All the things we've talked about should lead us to saving grace. Romans chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now think about that. There are people condemning vices. There are people telling their kids to not bed each other down and get venereal diseases. There are people out there saying you should treat people nicely. There's all kinds of things going on that when they look at the sinners, they go, that's bad. God would judge them. God should judge them. They have a sense of justice and they have a sense of righteousness. 
Then he says, do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, you're going to escape the judgment of God? And the answer is most of the time, yes. I kind of hope that I have, you know, excuses and reasons. So there's exceptions for myself. But he says, what you're doing there is presuming on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So as you stand and look at the bad in the world and say they're wrong, and you may look at the evening news and say it's really wrong, and you may say in your life, well, there are times I guess I do that that he has not judged you, that you've participated in something that is shown to be the mercy of God and the grace of God and it hasn't turned you over, that all of that should lead you to repentance. And that's the saving grace we want to talk about for the rest of our time together. Common grace points to saving grace. So let's talk about it with some words that many of you have heard, some of you have studied, some of you haven't, but we need to understand. Pervenient versus efficacious grace. Now here's where theology has to be a part of our discussion because these are two ways to describe saving grace and we have to distinguish these two. I try my best every time we get together to try and get all the theological gobbledygook that really isn't super helpful for us to get out of the conversation. I can't help it here. Provenient grace and efficacious grace, we need to understand the difference. Let's talk about the first one. Provenient grace. Provenient grace. Think about it. If you were to look it up in a dictionary, you'd say, okay, I, I get what's happening. Provenient is something that comes before. And what we're talking about here, and the goal is regeneration. So this is the description of pre-regenerate grace. Now, based on what I've just taught on for the last 15 minutes here, you'd say, well, of course there's preven- prevenient grace. Of course there's grace before salvation because you just described all these things that are the common grace of God and it is the grace of God and if it's the grace of God I clearly had the common grace of God before I had the saving grace of God and wouldn't that be prevenient grace and the answer would be technically yes but that's not what people mean when they discuss this theologically they're talking about a kind of grace that is in contradistinction to what we're going to talk about as efficacious grace so let's understand what they mean by this pre-regenerate grace they're not talking about common grace they're talking about a grace that makes me neutral before God. And I got to say it that way because that's the way technically what that's what they mean. I've got a problem because of my relationship with Adam. And I have to have that problem somehow masked or removed so that now I can deal with God as I ought to. I ought to I, I have to get to a place where I can make this this decision, which is how it's usually pitched in this camp about Christ and I need to somehow have the pre-spade work done in my heart to take care of the problem of the of the problem of Adam the guilt of Adam I got to get that removed if you are versed in theology the the kind of discussions we've had them on the weekend because we've had to back in in uh, Romans uh, make the distinction between Pelagius and Augustine and, and Pelagianism and Augustine's fight with Pelagius about the idea of how man stands before God and a lot of us in the very simple explanation of this that I've given in my teaching, people say, well, that's ridiculous. Of course, we're not that way. We're not neutral before God, which in essence is what Pelagius was trying to say. We really don't carry the effects of Adam's sin into my dealings with the gospel and God because much like later advocates of this view when the Wesleyans would say that God has kind of removed the problem of Adam's sin so that now I can deal you know, with a straight mind regarding the gospel. So this is prevenient grace in people's mind is kind of the thing that frees me to stand before God, much like Adam did and make a decision whether I'm going to obey him and not obey him, embrace Christ or not embrace Christ. And that may may be a better way to put it. 
this makes a response to Christ possible. Prevenient grace is the view that what God is going to do is provide me his unmerited favor, the kind of unmerited favor of an advantage that allows me now to choose Christ. Now, they will quote verses like this. No one can come to me. Now, there's the becoming a Christian line, they would say, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So I got to be drawn kind of into the room, and then I can make the decision. Like a timeshare. I bought a timeshare. Well, how'd you buy the timeshare? Well, I went to this presentation. Well, I didn't go to the presentation unless someone invited me to the presentation. And once I got into the arena or the hotel lobby or the the, the convention center by the airport or whatever, then I bought the timeshare. I bought the timeshare because I got in the room to make the decision about buying the timeshare. Prevenient grace was the grace that got me there. Now I could sit there and say, I can, I can follow Christ. I want to follow Christ. I'll buy that. It's the grace that gets me drawn to him. And it's the coming to him then that I do. No one can come to me, Jesus said. Oh, I want to buy Christianity. I want to be on his team unless the Father draws him. So they'll say, that's that's the bringing me in. Now I can decide. Do you see what's being done there? They'll quote Acts chapter 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman, Luke talking now, because he's there on the scene with the Apostle Paul, named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. They'd say right there is prevenient grace. And it's the kind of grace that we're talking about. God puts me in a place where now I can, you know, at the airport Hilton, make a decision about whether I'm going to buy Tony Robbins tapes. That's the opening of my mind to now I can listen to this. See, because, and you could quote other passages, we could go on in this view, but unless you have the Spirit of God, the things of God to him are foolishness. But if the Spirit of God would be endowed to you by grace, you can now understand the things of God like Lydia, and now you can make a decision. What are you going to do with Christ? Yeah, i got to make a decision. Well, I can make the decision because God's prevenient grace, God's pre-regeneration grace, it gets me in the room. It gets me in the deal. It, it allows me to make a decision. Now, makes me neutral, much like Adam. Takes away the problem of Adam. And you can see this results in a kind of grace that may or may not result in conversion. Nah, I'm not going to buy the Tony Robbins tapes. I'm not going to buy the timeshare. I listened and God let me understand it and I understood it, but I don't want it. That's the doctrine of prevenient grace. It's the kind of grace that gets you able to decide... You have the ability to decide, you can choose to decide, and you can choose not to buy it. That's provenient grace. Have I spoken about that in such a way as you know that I don't believe that? So you can put a little sad face next to that. Sometimes I'll teach like that for a long time. Someone will come afterwards, so that was was a bad thing? Yeah, no, that's, that's a bad thing. This is not what I believe, at least. Letter B. I believe in this thing called efficacious grace. Backside of your worksheet. Efficacious grace. And again, I'm just using terms because these are the terms that you're going to run into and you have to... We have to go there in this language. And I hope you appreciate that about me. Because we, I don't know, I, don't, I shouldn't say what you appreciate about me. Who knows, maybe you don't appreciate anything about me. But I try to, if, if I taught like so many teachers do with all these terms and labels and things and, and we put uniforms on and, mat, and you know titles and all of that creates a kind of environment that there's so much prejudgment that goes into that. And I like to avoid that as much as possible. Number one. Here's what we're talking about when we talk about efficacious grace. You can see even the word origin here. It is effective grace. Effective for what? It is effective in bringing conversion. How many times? One out of one time. One out of one times. 100%. It is effective in bringing conversion. In other words, the grace that brings me to Christ, the unmerited favor of God, is the kind of favor that God brings me to to the point of, of conversion. 
may not be the best passage, but let's throw it up there. There's so many we could use, and we'll use more in a minute, but let's start with this one. Philippians 1, 6 and 7. I'm sure of this. He said, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of, of Jesus Christ. Now, some people want to say, well, chapter 4, this looks like they're giving. This is just that. Look at the next verse, verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Now, that's not the real reason. He could hold people in his heart, I suppose, that weren't. But here's the next thing. And you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You're in this thing. You're participants of grace. What kind of grace? A kind of grace, verse number six, that if it begins in you, God's going to make sure it goes to completion. It's an effective grace. It's a successful grace. A successful grace to bring you all the way to the end. Efficacious. Let me give you some more words in this list. Number two, it provides an irresistible drawing to Christ. An irresistible drawing, bringing, pulling, attraction to Christ. That if it is granted, the kind of saving grace I'm talking about, it's not just prevenient grace. It's actually efficacious grace or irresistible grace because it draws you to Christ. Because the verse they often quote, John 6, 44, I just put up on the screen the half of it that they want you to, to, to focus on. Here's the whole verse. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Here's the conjunction. Same group of people And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, if I understand this verse properly, which I think I'm in the majority on this, the idea is if you are drawn by the Father in this particular passage, you're raised up on the last day. You you have the positive Christ-like resurrection where you're resurrected to blessing and you hear the words enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And it starts with the drawing. And the drawing results in the coming to Christ, which results in the glorification or the resurrection efficacious grace provides a drawing that's going to get you to the place of the positive Christ-like resurrection that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. Another way to put it, and you've heard this word in this debate, I'm sure, it provides an effectual calling. Now, we made the distinction in calling because I said you cannot see the word calling and only have one definition for it in Scripture because you've got some passages where it says, you know, many are called, few are chosen. Well, that's, that's another great verse for the prevenient grace view, which means, hey, a lot of people get into the room, but not everybody buys Tony Robbins tapes. A lot of people come to the timeshare presentation, but not, not, not very many people buy it. A lot of people are enabled by God through grace to come into the room, to hear the message, and they decide not to take it. This is different. This is the kind of calling we pointed out on the night we talked about the calling that is put in that chain. We like to call the golden chain of these words, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And in this passage, we have no wiggle room and people don't get out of the room and don't buy the, buy the product. Romans 8.30, those whom he's predestined, those people, yeah, if he's predestined, then he's also called them. What kind of calling are we talking about? General call or specific call? kind of specific call we talked about last time we talked about this verse and those he called he justified and if he justified him he glorified him so what kind of calling are you talking about it's the kind of calling that is effectual it affects what god wants to accomplish which in this case is glorification just like the drawing is irresistible it draws you to christ and you come to him and you are resurrected on the last day efficacious grace irresistible drawing effectual calling these words are from the smile at me if these words are familiar to you Number four, and this is just a good illustration. I like it. I talk about it often. It really comes to the core of the issues here. It provides salvific life to dead sinners. The illustration provided for us in Ephesians chapter 2 of being dead in our transgressions and sins. I hope you understand that the idea of grace provided results in life, spiritual life. 
which is something that is not resisted. It's always something that is effectual. It is always something that is efficacious. It is always something that does what it intends to do. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 5, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. The combination of grace in this passage, saying that we've been made alive, much like that picture in, in John 11, having Lazarus taken out of the grave by the voice of God. There was no need for, hey, I'm going to get you into a light coma, and then you can decide whether you're going to come to life. You, you are given a call that is effectual. You are given a, a kind of grace from biological death to physical life that is, it's efficacious. It's irresistible. You can't do anything but respond as God intended. All right, great. What about free will? And, and maybe even my thing on predestination didn't solve that well enough. I have a little wiggle room in my schedule. Maybe we can revisit that. You'll have to pull on my ear a little bit if we need another lecture on that. We can get there if we need to. I have some time, which is rare. Number four, let's talk about means of grace and sacramentalism. Again, I cannot avoid these terms. I cannot avoid these words. These are the words constantly debated, and you need to know at least where your pastor stands and where this church stands on these issues. Means of grace, quote-unquote, versus sacramentalism. Now, the kind of grace I'm talking about here is saving grace. You think about saving grace, I hope you understand means or avenues or ways to get there. I hope you realize God needs no human means of saving grace. He doesn't need it. He needs nothing to get someone saved. Just like he needs no doctors on the scene, he needs no ventilator, he needs no feeding tubes to get Lazarus out of the ground. He didn't need any of that. He could do a miraculous conversion with every conversion that is ever done. Every regenerate person could be done without any human means of saving grace. Do you want an example of that? Certainly here was one. Someone breathing hostile threats against the church. Saul, who would become Paul, was on his way to Damascus. As he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Okay, well, that's a kind of conversion story that you and I don't have. And if you think you have one, don't, I don't want to hear about it. Fine, I'll hear about it. But you have to listen to me respond to your story. This is a very unique conversion story, is it not? It wasn't the four spiritual laws. It wasn't the Kennedy evangelism explosion. It wasn't the umbrella. It wasn't the bridge diagram. It was not a uh, door hanger that started a conversation. It wasn't a conversion at the Irvine Spectrum by our evangelism teams. This is like, you don't need anybody. God himself knocks a guy off the horse and says, I, I'm going to pick you out to change your life, and I got a job for you to do, and he changes his heart. So God, you would agree with this. God needs no human agency, and yet you've got a testimony, and it involves human agency, and so do I. God chooses to use means of saving grace, and he does all the time. Of course he does. God uses means of saving grace, avenues, ways that he gets people saved that are human, that are earthly, things you can see, things you can hear, things you can touch, things with people that actually have addresses. Romans chapter 10 Verses 13 through 15. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Great. Well, that's what we need. Now we need Saul to call on the name of the Lord. So God, how are you going to save Saul? I'm going to knock him off his horse myself, and I'm going to get him saved all by, by me. Okay. And that's what he did. Paul says, now, that's not the way it's going to happen through the church age. Matter of fact, he says, that ain't going to be the norm. As a matter of fact, it's not even going to be the rare exception. How is anyone going to call on the name of the Lord? How are they going to call on the Lord if they haven't believed in him? How are they going to believe in him if they never heard him? How are they going to hear without a preacher, someone preaching? How are they going to preach unless someone sends them? Oh, how beautiful it is that those who bring the, you know, how beautiful are the feet of those who, who preach the good news. 
Why do you need feet at all? God has proven he can do it without him. Well, this is how he does it, through human instruments, human means, okay? Now, the Bible says, more specifically, the human means that he uses in every case, with the exception of the miraculous saving of the, uh, the apostle Paul, is through the means of Scripture, certainly. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul looks at his protege in Ephesus, and he says, You know how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So you learned salvation. You were enabled through a document. Now, that could have been read to him by Lois or Eunice, his mother or grandmother. Could have been preached to him at the local synagogue that he grew up in. But the point is, he is hearing the message of the scriptures. Certainly, that is the norm. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again, salvation, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God, through the means, the mechanism, the means of the word, that's certainly something that is heard, read, summarized, preached, something you heard on the radio from the word, a neighbor that quoted the word. The Bible becomes certainly one of the core and obvious and almost you know, non-exceptional means of our salvation. So God chooses to use means of saving grace. You with me on that? Nothing fancy there. But not through sacramentalism. God does not save through sacramentalism. God does not take human, earthly, visible means of grace if we, what we mean by that is something called sacramentalism. Well, what is that? What are the sacraments? Sacraments. If you've been around here, you know we talk often about all the words that come from the word hagios, holy in the Bible. And it went through the Latin translation of the Bible to the word uh, sanctus. And that sanctus word gave us all kinds of words in English that all relate to holiness or being set apart, sanctuary, inner sanctum. Uh, sanctified, the saints, all that come from the word sanctus, which comes from the word hagios, which is the Greek word, which has to do with the idea of being set apart or holy. So sacraments, you can see right away, oh, we're talking about some kind of holy thing, sacra at the beginning of this, sacraments has to do with the idea of the deposit, a sacred deposit. There's something that's being deposited, and here's how they would understand it. A holy or sacred ritual, that's the means, that deposits grace dispensed, now this is the catch now, dispensed by the divinely instituted church. The church now can deposit God's saving grace. Not like we're talking about through an evangelist or through the Bible being quoted. We're just talking now about something different, as I'll explain with clarity, I hope. A sacred something that you go through that is overseen by the church, that has the authority to dispense God's grace to people, and deposit that saving grace to you, a holy activity, a holy ritual. Okay, former Catholics in the room here, are you out there? This is all familiar to you then. Let's talk about the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. No one is more explicit about the belief of sacramentalism, which means that God saves through the holy or sacred rituals that are rightly administered to you through the authority of the divinely sanctioned church. The seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, some of the names have changed. I use the older names here, but I'll update the names for you as we go through them. Certainly, it starts with baptism, and we'll talk a little bit more about this. Baptism. When do we want to baptize someone if we're in the Roman Catholic Church? ASAP, baby. Get it done right away. Right? They're born. Get them down to the church. Get it done. We'll talk about why. Because God is dispensing saving grace through the mechanism, the ritual, the visible ritual of baptism administered by the divinely sanctioned church who has the keys to dispense this baptism. Confirmation. How many have been through confirmation in the Roman Catholic Church? 
Eucharist, of course, the ongoing meal, so we'll look at this in a second too, to dispense sacramental saving grace to the participant. Now, this used to be called confession, but if you look closely at the symbol for this, you'll see the, the whip, the flagellation, the whip. You see the key, and you see the cross. The key, the, through the confession, which now long, it no longer since 1994, actually, since there was some release of the reins in, the Vatic, in Vatican II, but then certainly in the Roman Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church 1994, there's been some adjustments officially from Rome on this, so they don't even call it confession anymore. They actually call it penance in the latest version. But the idea is, as you see by the whip, the penance that you do to make up for the sins that you've done used to be inviolably tied to confession, which now not, not so much, as the revision has said. But it used to be called confession. Now they call it penance. But the same idea. And we would encourage you to go do confession and a confessional by a divinely instituted priest. Certainly they want that. But the means of grace can still be done through penance. And that's that category. Extreme unction, which they don't call it this anymore either, too Latin, I suppose. Now they call it anointing the sick, but it's the same idea. Something through a priest to rightly administer the rites to a person who's ill, the anointing of the sick, or the extreme unction, last rites, falls into this. The holy orders, the ministry. I mean, obviously God's grace to continue to authorize leaders within the church has to happen by the church, and it's brokered through the church, and so holy orders being in ministry. And of course, marriage, marriage itself, the sacrament of holy matrimony, marriage, which is why the annulment thing is such a big deal. It's why the Pope currently, who's relaxed the quote-unquote practice of theology within the church, why not changing the doctrine is a lot of double talk, but the idea of saying we can't have divorce and at least doctrinally, they'll say we can't have divorce because this is a sacrament of God's grace. It is inviolable. It is something that cannot be taken back. It is done once married. You're always married. So they have to come up with a way to reverse these things. So they call it an annulment. And the annulment we can grant through the divinity of the church and the authority of the church. We hold the keys of the kingdom. So we'll just say it's annulled, which means it never happened at all. That's all in flux, and currently during the whole thing that's going on right now in Rome in this uh, family conference they're having to try and talk through some of the application of this. And they're liking, they're wanting the Catholic Church right now to make a big, big distinction between doctrinal belief and pastoral practice. And it's getting really messy over there. But the idea of matrimony or marriage certainly is a dispensing of God's grace. Now, my contention is God isn't dispensing grace through those things. God does not save people through the sacraments. Let's spend a little time now talking about the claims of the Roman Catholic Church as it relates to this. It's so important because a lot of your friends are Catholics. You grew up Catholic. Maybe this is confusing. It needs to be super clear, crystal clear. So we're on 4C. Okay, I just put the crest up here because you see the keys. You understand that's the... That's the key to everything in the Catholic Church is that they claim they've got the keys. And let me just talk a little bit about a couple of the claims from the latest version of the authoritative word from Rome, the Roman Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church. Section 1084. Christ now acts through the sacraments, which I just laid out for you, which he instituted to communicate the avenue of his grace. His grace coming through the sacraments. Now, if you're wondering, well, is this saving grace? I'll show it to you in a second. It's exactly what I'm talking about exactly what the doctrine teaches. How in the world do they have power to do that? Starts early in the Catechism, section 95. It is clear, therefore, now listen carefully to this statement from the Catholic Catechism. And you understand this comes directly from Rome with the imprimatur of the Pope. The vicar of Christ has signed off on this. This is good Catholic doctrine. And if you're going to sit here and say, well, my mom's a Catholic. She doesn't believe this. My uncle's a Catholic. He doesn't believe this. Priest down the street, I don't think he believes this. I think he probably does. But let's just say they don't. Then they're bad Catholics. 
They're bad Catholics. This is a creedal church, a doctrinal church, with a hierarchy that goes all the way to the vicar of Christ. If you don't believe this, then you're out of step with the church. I know Americans like to be out of step with everybody and feel like they're fine, but you're not a good Catholic, and I'm all for bad Catholics. I want as many bad Catholics as possible, because I'd like you to be so bad that you actually quit and become a Protestant, which, by the way, is the reason I am a Protestant, because of what we're talking about right here, the problem of grace being confused and believing that it's brokered through the sacraments. Catholic Catechism, section 95, it is clear, therefore, at least to them it is, that the supreme, in the supremely wise arrangement of God, sacred tradition, now note this, sacred scripture and the magisterium of the church, that's the authoritative brokering of what is true and right. So I got the church authority, I got the church's track record, and I got the scripture. Note this next phrase. Are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the other. You want a heretical statement, there's one for you. Think about what, what's just been said there. The magisterium of the church, the tradition of the church, and the scripture of the church. You cannot have a single one of those stand without the other. This is a three-pronged tripod. You cannot take one leg off. And you know what I'm going to say to that? You don't think the scripture can stand on its own? You don't think the scripture can trump the, the, the dotted and sordid history of the church? You don't think that the scripture can trump the magisterium of any human organization? I don't care if you want to say it's from God or not. A lot of people have said a lot of things in the name of God and continue to say them when they're out of step with the scripture. You can't tell me that the scripture can't stand on its own. It's exactly what they're teaching as the, as the, as the official doctrine of the church. Working together, each in its own way, under the action of one Holy Spirit. Now, there's the contention. They believe that God equally works through all three of those. They all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. So how do they get the sacramental dispensing of saving grace through the sacraments? Well, because it comes through the magisterium of the church, their authority. It comes through the history of the church, what they've done, what they've taught through history, and, of course, through the written word. You do understand why the medieval church didn't even want the Bible in the language of the people. You understand why now. Because as soon as you got the Bible out of step and you say, well, this leg of the tripod's way longer than those two legs, people are going to be confused. That's why they didn't want the Bible in the language of the people. 1250. I don't use this word every day, but the sheer gratuitousness. You know what gratuitous means, right? That means it's not, not earned. It's just a fancy way to say super not earned, right? The sheer gratuitousness of the grace of salvation. Okay, now God's grace, free gift of grace, how is it manifest? How is it brokered? How is it dispensed? What is the means of that gratuitous grace? It's particularly manifest in infant baptism. The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless, you can't put a price on it, the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. Now, follow that statement. The conferring, the manifestation the conferring of the ordinance is the manifestation of God's grace that changes a child's status from not being a child of God to being a child of God. The sheer gratuitous of the grace of salvation is particularly manifested in infant baptism. Now, all seven of them distribute God's grace, but this one is particular. The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. 1392. What material food, going to the Eucharist now, produces... In our bodily life, Holy Communion wonderfully achieves in our spiritual life. So when I eat a hamburger, it produces bodily life in me. Not great bodily life. Salad, fine, whatever. Right? Holy Communion does the same thing in my spiritual life. I stay alive because I eat. 
I now stay spiritually alive because I'm partaking in Holy Communion. Communion with the flesh of the risen Christ, which of course is what they believe, transubstantiation, that the elements turn into the actual body and blood of Christ because of my ingesting of those things. That flesh is a giving life, it's a given life rather, and a giving life through the Holy Spirit. So it was given on the cross through the Spirit. It's now giving life through the Spirit. It preserves, increases, and renews the life of grace that's received at baptism. Are you following this? I got the grace of salvation making me a child of God at baptism. Now I'm keeping that life going. I didn't just get born into the world. Now I got to eat. And I'm eating now through the mechanism or the channel of the of the sacrament of, of communion, the Eucharist. It preserves, increases, and renews life of grace received at baptism. This growth in the Christian life needs the nourishment of Eucharistic communion. So I'm growing and staying spiritually alive through the ongoing meal of the, of the literal body of Christ. They got the keys, so they can say this. 1393, Holy Communion separates us from sin. Okay, think that through now. Holy communion separates us from sin. The body of Christ we receive at Holy Communion is given up for us. And the blood we drink shed for many, the many, for the forgiveness of sins. For this reason, the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without the same time cleansing us from sin, past sins, and preserving us from future sins. Did you follow that? Look, stare at those words. The Eucharist unites me to Christ. I'm now being incorporated with Christ. I'm nourishing my spiritual life, and it's putting away my sins. My past sins are forgiven through the eating of the element, which is the physical body of Christ. Well, I don't think my aunt believes that. Then your aunt is a bad Catholic. I mean, I'm tired of having that conversation after I teach on these things. Your aunt doesn't believe it. She's a great gal. She's a bad Catholic, but she doesn't believe what the church teaches. Is that enough? I could go on for hours on this. On, I really could, seriously. Uh, ask some of the people on the staff. I've, I've, I've gone for hours on these topics. But the sacramental system is different than what people mean when I talk about the means of grace being someone preaching the gospel to me, the word of God. Now, unfortunately, our Presbyterian Reformed friends make it really confusing for us because there are a lot of non-Catholics that still speak of the means of grace. Luther, Calvin, these guys spoke of the means of grace, and it's pretty confusing especially when you get into things like infant baptism because they don't really have a good category for that because it's wrong. (laughs) That's one of the reasons. And it's unbiblical. And because of that, the throwover, the lag of of the Reformation confused a few of these. They still talk a lot about the means of grace. But because they're so hyped on the purity of the gospel, they qualify it this way. You press them and they say, well, when I use the word means of grace, I don't mean saving grace. I mean sanctifying grace. And if you're going to say that, then okay, I get it. You can still be a Protestant and say that. Matter of fact, a lot of the high Protestants will say that. I believe in means of grace. Piper's going to talk about it. All your, all your reform guys talk about means of grace. You won't find me talking about means of grace. Not because I don't believe there are means of sanctifying grace. Of course I do. But means of grace is described in ways that for most people in their minds means sacramentalism. And I don't want to talk about that because that's not biblical. So I want to be real careful with this category, but I know what they mean and I get it. And what they mean is preaching primary means of grace. Lord's Supper, means of grace. Baptism, means of grace. Prayer, means of grace. But what they mean by that, it's a means of sanctifying grace. Here's how they like to say it. I either got this from Luther or Calvin, one of the two. It is a means to stir up one's faith. Now that, okay then, I'm fine with that. I get that. Talk about sanctifying grace. I'm going to do a whole night just on sanctifying grace. We're going to save that for another lecture because there's a lot of confusion in our circles on that. So I understand that. But they do not mean what the Catholics mean. And they've said it so well in Trent 
which was the council after the Reformation, called the Counter-Reformation, where they codified their beliefs and they made it very clear, we're not Protestants, we're not saying what they're saying, we don't believe in sola scriptura, the scripture alone, we do not believe what they're saying about baptism and what they're saying about uh, grace and salvation. And when it comes to the sacraments, when the Protestants say means of grace and the Catholics say sacramentalism or means of grace, they mean two different things. What people say who believe in a Protestant gospel, which means we're saved by grace alone, not through the mechanism of sacramentalism, they mean, I'm not talking about ex opere operato. Ex opere operato means, and here's the longer definition, this Latin phrase, the benefit is by the very fact of the action being performed. The benefit is by the very act right, of the action being performed. The working in the working. In other words, that's literally what it means, from the working, working. The, the ex opere operato means that, and it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If I'm baptizing a baby and they're becoming a child of God, they're just thinking, when's my next meal or my diaper's dirty? They're not thinking anything spiritual. They're just babies. But the church, divinely authorized, is now doing something that to the one who is going through the, the mechanism of the sacrament, they're receiving the benefit just by doing it. They don't have to think about it. They don't even have to be a a cognitive participant. By the very act of doing it, they get the benefit. Last rites, extreme unction, anointing the sick. You got someone passed out in a coma. Priest comes in, administers rites to the person, gives them the extreme unction there at that that moment of, of dispensing the grace of the sacrament, of anointing the sick. And in doing that, you could be in a coma. You still get the benefit and you're not a participant in it. In other words, you don't, you don't pay attention. You're not even thinking. You're not cognitive. You're not involved in that. Ex opere operato is what the Catholic Church teaches. It is not what your Reformed friends and your Presbyterian friends mean when they say, I believe in the means of grace. There's a distinction there. Means of grace. I believe in the means of grace too. I, I believe in that. If what you mean by that is sanctifying grace. And if you want to talk about justifying grace, oh yeah, there are human means of preaching the gospel. Someone has to come and tell you that. Yes, God doesn't need them. He uses them. But it isn't through the sanctioned sacraments of the church. Now, biblically, let's ask the question. Is there power? In other words, is there divine benefit in a ceremony just because you did the ceremony? And the answer would be, in the Bible from beginning to end, no. Never has been. There's no teaching in the Bible to substantiate ex opere operato, the kind of action being done by a divinely authorized person that brings about a benefit without the participation of the person. And lest you're Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb. Then, okay, you got me on that. You're right. God has the ability to do things without the person's involvement. In a sense, we say that about regenerate grace, but we do not believe that the human sanctioning of a divine institution like a church has been given those kinds of power. Just like the Jewish people who were in the Old Testament, circumcising their kids, duly under the law, the way they were supposed to, it did not accomplish what the symbol pointed to. Case in point. It's what we're reading in our daily Bible reading right now. I thought it would be relevant. Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. That'd be like saying, I'm going to come and, and, and bring retribution on those who are baptized just with water. Okay. Well, you got Egypt, you got Judah, you got Edom, you got the sons of Ammon, Moab, all those who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. They got all kinds of things going on. But for these nations, they're uncircumcised. What do you mean? All the house of Israel, they're uncircumcised in heart. How do I do that? Well, it's not the ceremony of cutting off the foreskin when you were a child. We read this in chapter 4. He says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. What do you mean? I was circumcised as a baby, these Jewish people would say. No, no, no. The foreskins of your heart. You got a problem here. These symbolize something that are real. These visible rituals 
were pictures of something internal, but the internal thing had to happen, and you had to do that. It had to be your participation in this thing. In this case, the circumcising of your heart. Remove the foreskin of your heart, so men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So they need internal change. That needs to be something. They can't point to some external behavior and say, well, see there, I, I went through the, the motions. I was duly baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, or you know, I went through confirmation. I, I take the Eucharist. These, much like we would say, as Zwingli would say, who is my hero in this process. These are memorials. These are pictures. They are symbols. They are external pictures of internal realities, and they are not affecting something simply by the participation in them, either saving or actually even sanctifying, because you have to participate. They point to greater realities. All right, lastly, how's he going to do this in five, ten minutes, nine minutes? This stuff you already know. That's how I'm going to do it, really fast. Old Testament, New Testament distinction. Clearly, we get... This whole pitting against one of the other law and grace from passages like this. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. The word became flesh. It dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He comes to bring grace. What kind of grace? Saving grace. Now, John bore witness about him. He cried out, this is the one whom I said. He comes after me. He ranks before me because he was before me. He preexisted. He is the God. He is the lamb of God. Great. Verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Christ arrived. That's the one. We get grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law, Moses, Old Testament, mm, New Testament, here comes Christ and his apostles expounding on the resident grace that was provided upon grace that came through Christ. So instantly we see in our thinking a distinction. And there is a distinction. I'm all for that. Now, let's try and think it through by examining the law just real quickly. But you already know this. The law is three major divisions. I could prove this to you if I had more time because I do get people pushing back on this because seminary journals are being written about it, which I think are, are foolish, actually, a lot of them. And I could prove that, I think, in that argument. There's moral and ethical, civil and criminal, ritual and ceremonial, and you would agree with that. If not, I'd like to convince you at another time. There are laws clearly in the Old Testament that came through Moses that are clearly saying, do not bear false witness, do not commit adultery, do not covet in your heart. These are moral and ethical commands. There are civil and criminal commands. The kinds of things that you do when someone steals from you, how much restitution should they have? How do you set up a kind of, of, of judgment? How many witnesses do you need for this? What does it mean to murder versus manslaughter? All of those things, civil and criminal, that's the second division of law. Ritual and ceremonial is the third cutting off the foreskin of your children, going and sacrificing an animal, worshiping on the Sabbath, having a Sabbath year, having a year of Jubilee. These are all rituals and ceremonies of the Old Testament. Let us see. The law is good. It's spoken of as good all throughout the Bible. Romans chapter 7, verse 12, couldn't say it anymore, any more emphatically than this. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is good. It's really good. Why? Well, because moral law reflects the character of God very directly. God says, be faithful. Why? Because I'm a faithful God. God says, don't bear false witness. Why? Because I'm not a liar. God says you shouldn't uh, be someone who, who deceives and, and hurts or does something that is in any way surreptitious or treacherous. Well, all those things are, are things that reflect the character of God. Yeah, be holy as I am holy. We're talking about the ethical behaviors in all your conduct, it says. Civil reflects the character of God in an indirect way. If I see now that for malice aforethought in a murder, it's different than manslaughter, I know something about 
even though the effects seem to be the same, there's something here about intention. There's something here about culpability. I can look at someone who does something in terms of stealing property or versus a rape. I can see the distinctions and the severities, and one is worse than the other. And so God judges people accordingly. I learned something about the penalties that will carry on through the Bible to say God is reflecting his character even so that you know that when people are judged according to their deeds you had an old testament law with civil penalties the penal code of the old testament the criminal law you knew there was distinctions and hierarchies in terms of sin i know that one sin right makes you a sinner and in that sense one law makes you lawless but when it comes to sin there's a hierarchy you learn a lot about the righteousness of god you learn a lot about god's values and his character through the civil law. Ceremonial law reflects God's character indirectly as well. So many things in the ceremonial law. You've got to bring your spotless lamb to be sacrificed. You've got to bring a bigger animal for a bigger problem. You've got to have uh, dietary restrictions that, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, are a lot like the reflection you see of the distinction in your social behavior as it relates to the non-Christians that live around you in, in a Greco-Roman society, for instance. Lots of things we could say about that. But all of them reflect in some way God's character. And in that sense, it's holy, it's good, it's just, it's righteous. Law, when it comes to saving grace, reveals our need for it. Romans chapter 3. We know that whether the, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. The jurisdiction of the law, of course, is universal. You read it, you know you're responsible. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul says in chapter 7, I wouldn't know know what coveting was unless God explained it and said that's wrong. So I understand my sin because I read the Old Testament law. So in that sense, it drives me to grace. Letter E, the law's demand for death is broken. Note this now. The law's demand for death is broken. The wages of sin is death. You're a sinner. Why aren't you going to experience the second death and be cast out of God's presence? Because grace has, has ended that. Take a look at this great passage, Romans chapter 8. Verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, I thought I should be condemned if I'm a sinner. It was wrong to acquit the the guilty. I'm guilty. You're going to acquit me? How's that? Grace is going to invalidate that arrangement. For the law of the spirit of life, God has now arranged in the atonement that we talked about last time. He's arranged the invalidation of the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I deserve punishment. I deserve to die. I deserve recompense for every sin that I've ever committed. But I'm going to get freed from that because grace is going to break that. The law's demand for death is is broken. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, because I can't keep it, couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, by the way reflecting the law of God, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, the God who wrote the the Bible. There's a lot there, but for the sake of time, that's the point. The law is broken. In that sense, hey, grace invalidates that aspect of the law. And the Bible says, hey, be careful with the law because the wrong use of the law is nothing more than you rejecting God's saving grace. Look at this great line. 1 Timothy 1.8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And here's the problem. You can take the law of God, use it, in a wrong way, and unfortunately, step out of the realm of saving grace. How's that? Galatians 2.21. Do I nullify the grace of God? For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's either Christ dies to break the penalty of sin, or I can break the penalty of sin through my own law keeping. It's called penance, by the way. And if I can do that, well, then Christ died for nothing. But the point is, He died because he was going to break the penalty of sin. So I have to cling to that and not thinking that the law can solve my problem with lawlessness. 
Galatians 5.4, which is a verse that people scratch their head on. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, which he's already said in chapter 2 is impossible, you've fallen away from grace. You've stepped away from this. You've said, I don't want it. You've rejected grace because you're using the law to try to be justified. That's what most of your neighbors and friends are trying to do. Am I right? You ask them, are you going to heaven? And they say, well, I hope so. Why? Because I'm trying to be a good person. Based on what? Well, you know, Bible says don't lie. Try not to lie. Don't commit adultery. I'm doing pretty well on that. Not committing adultery. So I'm trying to keep the rules. And that, I hope, will make me right with God when I die. If you use the law that way to try and hope that God grades on a curve, you're going to be sorely disappointed because God's more holy than you think he is. And unfortunately, you've stepped away from this realm of grace, this opportunity for grace. Don't reject grace by the wrong use of the law. Gee, there are three proper uses of the law. The formula of Concord, the Lutheran. I'm not going to... Well, my assistant isn't here, so I can try and speak in German for you. Sundenspiegel was the first way that was put in the formula of Concord, which said that there is a mirror that shows you your sin. We just saw that. We don't need any verses on this, but they like to call that in later theology the pedagogical use of the law. It leads me to Christ. I recognize that the law of God and the the command against coveting helps me see I've broken the law, I need grace, I've got to have someone else solve my problem. That's the Sundenspiegel use of the law, as they put it. Then there's the societal restraint of sin. We looked at this in Common Grace. How do we know God is dispensing common grace on the world because insofar as governments are doing what they're called to do according to the Bible, based on the biblical morality of the Bible, what's right and wrong, well, then they're restraining sin. That's Sundenriegel. Sundenspiegel, Sundenriegel. They call that in later theology the political use of the law. The political. And the political use of the law is to guide our governors, guide our leaders. In those days, it was their kings and those sent by the kings. In our day, we have an opportunity to vote these people in. We feel impotent in this, but at least in our democratic republic, our idea is supposed to be to present you know, ourselves in the voting booth and try and get these people in. But the point is we ought to get people in there who understand their job is to look at the morality of God and try and restrain sin in our society. Lastly, Lebensregel is the rule of life. They all rhyme. That's why it became a catchy way to remember the three uses of the law. This is didactic. Didactic is teaching, to instruct in Christ-likeness. Now, I'm going to spend a whole lecture just on that. Sanctifying grace and the rule of life. The rule and use of the law as I understand the sanctifying grace in my life. That's the big debate that's out there today in the landscape of evangelicalism, and I want to address it. But I have no time tonight. Sundenspiegel, Sundenriegel, Lebensriegel, says Klink. (laughs) That's not on TV anymore, anywhere, is it? All right, let me pray for you. God, thanks for our time. May some of this be helpful, I pray, in us understanding saving grace. Thank you so much for it. May we understand it well, preach it well, share it well with our neighbors and friends. Understand how gracious you are to save us even though we don't deserve it. Thanks for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.